I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadeid13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we take a break from our Gaza War coverage for a conversation I recorded back in, I believe it was October, with... Matthew Casta, a playwright whose most notable work is, without a doubt, Dimes Square. He is also the author of a piece in Compact Magazine entitled Downtown Demons, which deals with the micro-celebrity and micro-culture scene in Manhattan that arose during the pandemic. This is where the term Dime Square comes in. And it's a fascinating topic because this scene that emerged during the pandemic with parties that kind of skirted the pandemic rules has evolved into something else entirely. And Matthew finds it rather concerning. A lot of people say that what has emerged out of the Dime Square scene is fascist in nature, Matthew has a different take. He thinks at its base, the scene is infected with a nihilism. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Matthew Gasta. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, Matthew Gasta, a dramatist, novelist, and poet. He's the author of 15 plays and counting, including the underground hit Dime Square. And we're going to be talking about his article, Downtown Demons for Compact. Uh, Matthew, uh, how are you doing? And maybe you could talk about uh, yeah. what this piece is about, because I, I feel like some people are going to need a crash course on what Dime's 
square is and the the downtown scene that you're talking about <laughs> man yeah that's easier said than done uh easier done than said the scene as i argue in the place is both an actual or was because i even since i wrote the article i'm starting to feel like a lot of the the cultural alliances that were operating at the time or in the time that I was writing about the last two or three years are starting to break up, but, and the places and the, and the people that were getting together are starting to uh, silo, but on a basic level, downtown literally refers to downtown in New York city and Manhattan, basically anything South of 14th street. But in particular, we're talking about Chinatown during the pandemic and the post pandemic era. But then we're also talking about a place where internet micro celebrities found like a, a a real world corporeal body to inhabit and corporeal spaces to inhabit. And so I think more symbolically downtown or Times Square, which I think are interchangeable words at this point, refer to a place where people who are internet famous do stuff, <laughs> throw parties, readings, plays, do drugs gossip so this this sort of scene comes together as you put it in uh downtown demons uh just as a response to the pandemic and it's fairly it's a wide mix of people uh could you speak to that a little bit yeah of course um so what i again argue in the piece is that around 2020 was driven by people who were willing to socialize period and there wasn't other social energy. And so there weren't enough people who wanted to go out and do things and make things that you could vet for politics that you could vet for ideology. So there was this pushback going on with this scene uh, emerging against the sort of a pandemic response and the, you know, stay inside, follow all the rules. Yeah. Yeah. And it was nonconform. Yeah. Basically like if you look at British, the history of like British nonconformism or you know, the early American colonies. So like, it's in a sense, you could argue that it was a late kind of cringe version of nonconformism, which is, is, as a general umbrella has always attracted weirdos from all sorts of fringe groups in any, any culture where you say they're. So yeah, in hindsight, I would say it was a nonconformist anti-authoritarian arrangement. Um, But I mean, by, by this, I mean, culturally, not really, it was not a group of activists. I mean, we're, we're talking about it was a cultural rebellion. It was cultural nonconformism, which involved invoking political speech, but wasn't inherently in the political in the sense that no one was like canvassing to, you know, run for office or to harness, you know, financing for a candidate or to change a law. Now, and I also think, um, and this was this was there was there are a lot of things I had to leave out of the piece because there's so many different cultural forces at play, and specifically because. The downtown I'm talking about is influenced by the internet, which means like there are almost infinite little inputs. You can't, I can't possibly track all of them, but I do think obviously in addition to the pandemic, people are also responding to what woke it was now again, kind of conventionally known as the woke era or cancel culture or the sort of post-Trump. I think of it as a post-Trump moral panic um, that took on many different forms. Um, But yeah, it was, a, in general, 
a response to the scold, like COVID scolds and then moral scolding, moral panics. Um, again, no one was thinking about, no one went, oh, I'm going to go hang out at this bar because I'm tired of hanging around scolds. This wasn't anything that any single person articulated and had a roadmap for. It was just sort of what was happening. And it sort of emerged organically. It absolutely emerged organically. And yeah, and, and my sense and my argument is that D Dime Square downtown became a meeting point for this organic evolution of uh, cultural viewpoints and political viewpoints. I, I think I'll have listeners that if they're familiar with this downtown scene, They'll say that it's become, uh, well, you put it in in, in the article, is uh, a lot of people accuse this downtown scene of mm -hmm. being now a, a sort of fascist epicenter. Uh, and you say that those claims are actually a distraction. Why is that? Well, it's helpful to look at when people say that. They're typically without evidence. <laughs> they're, they're typically viral. There have been a few viral posts or articles or substacks to this end, they've never been closely reported, never been evidentiary, never involved uh, <laughs> a historical or genealogical view of what fascism is, and have almost entirely been reliant on, oh, there are some vibes. And, but more pertinently, there's no fascist organizing going on. No one is, that I've been covered. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm not deep enough in the conspiracy or something, but there's, from what I can see, there's there's chatter, there's discourse that occasionally has strongly right wing leaning features, and or you hear people, another you meet people, in other words, who are clearly right wing in ideology. But you know, fascism to me is a is a historically is really about, and I, mean, I guess this is famously debatable, but it involves some kind of national unification of industry, the military. And a charismatic figurehead, and a return to a kind of primal power in service of a return, like uh, uh, you know, a return to your Germanness or your your Romanness or something. And well, yeah, there are people who might be at a party who are who are bullshitting on those themes. They don't have a militia. They don't have uh, you know someone in the military who's planning a coup. Like if we look really at what fascism has involved, like this is not fascism. This is people bullshitting at parties. And I just think if you can't make that distinction. And uh, if you're not making that distinction, you're not help. You're not serving the pragmatic. You're not serving knowledge in a pragmatic sense. You're not serving, you're not informing people. Um, you're saying something really sensationalistic for clicks or, or to promote your own brand. And it's typically someone with like their sort of left wing or like Marxist Maoist, uh, fantasies saying, oh, you know, I need the fascists in order to reify my own left-wing revolutionary brand. So I need them to exist. So I think there's also a lot of that. The the fascist role-playing needs the Maoist role-playing, the Maoist role-playing needs the fascist role-playing, but it's all, it's all just speech. It's all just symbols. It's all sort of a joke. I think you argue less than being a fascist epicenter, it's become a scene of this sort of hyper-ironized brand of nihilism that's really just all about how can I get more clout? How can I get more virality? How can I get more micro-fame? Uh, and this sort of leads into uh, some really weird territories where you have people walking around with, say, uh, Bronze Age perverts uh, self-published 
dissertation, Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy. Uh, so you have people that are sort of getting into eugenics and whatnot. Uh, what do you think this all entails? Like what, I mean, th there's these really sort yeah. of dark eugenics and, and racialist elements coming out of this scene in some ways. I, I hope that's an okay way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I put it that way myself. So, but but I guess for people that think, okay, this just sounds like very online people, what what is the consequence of this kind of thing? Like, what why why should people be paying attention to this? Maybe, or why do you think it's worth paying attention to? Yeah, that's a so that's a, a great question, and it and it locates a, a potential contradiction in the premises of my argument, which is that one of the premises is this is all fluff, and the other premises is this is disturbing and unsettling and something that we should care about. And so that's why I use the allusion to Dostoevsky's demons. And that allusion is meant to say in that novel, which I think is regardless of politics is one of the best 10 works of literature, you know, fiction ever. Uh, it's great to read. And it's an amazing book, regardless of what you're looking for captures the psychology of, of a kind of the Russian of revolutionaries that would become deeply relevant in 1905, when there was a failed revolution, and then again in 1917, when there was a successful revolution, and probably in many steps along the way. And that in the same way that like, I've been seeing little things pop up on Twitter about Radiohead in 1997 and, and Kid A, and, and I've been thinking about this myself, like, they were sort of wrong at the time, but they were right about now. Like, there was someone say, I thought it was a great tweet, like, Tom York didn't know how good he had it in 1997. But okay, computer is right. It was just right a little bit too early. Kid A was right. It was just right a little bit too early. Uh, and I just, I think the history there, that's just one example at random. But artists basically, I think, get at things a little earlier. They sort of, you know, when when dolphins swim out to sea right before a tsunami, like an hour before, or like Maori tribesmen will have this amazing ability to, to know to paddle out beyond the, the tsunami. It's uh, like, a, I think artists in some ways can tap into the cultural zeitgeist before it's really become Absolutely. the zeitgeist yeah yes and so i'll be clear like these are scary discourses and if you armed some of these people again i think the left or the right or the just purely nihilistic anarchist variety like they would be scary like i i genuinely am starting to overhear people in public or watch the evolution of certain online personas and i really think okay these and I, yeah i think these people would kill if they were given license to if there was sort of an actual fascist or revolutionary period in which rule of law was suspended. I, I do think violence, there's, there is a kind of glorification of violence is a lust for violence, I think, uh, or at least a fascination with it. And if you're fascinated with it, you're at least going to be willing to pull the trigger and see what happens. And so, yeah, are these online, very online people starting to congregate at crypto parties? Is that today a, uh, an immediate threat to democracy? No. And that's, it's absurd when the Atlantic or something like writes this, like, you know, imminent fascist revolution happening because some crypto guys read BAP like that. That is a chain of logic that is pretty flawed. But at the same time, if you go in the opposite direction, you say, well, there's nothing relevant about how people are thinking. There's nothing relevant about how people are feeling. There's nothing relevant about these political fantasies. Well, then you're, you're potentially going to be really unprepared when material and economic and social conditions in the future change. And suddenly those fringe uh, figures uh, find themselves with a lot more consequential 
power behind them. And that, that doesn't mean it'll happen in the United States. It, I think it's probably more likely in the short term to happen in Latin America. And I know there's a lot of the, a lot of right-wing leaning downtown figures are interested in Honduras and, and, and El Salvador and these smaller countries that are Bitcoin sympathetic and so on. And, and, technocratically inclined and could very well hire a consultant to run a department of their their government. I think these are these are real things that could happen. I know that these relationships are forming. And again, I don't necessarily think that the people I don't think like a Bitcoin guy flying to El Salvador to to meet with Bukele is evil. I don't think those are evil people. I think flirting with power is inherently dangerous and could inherently lead to evil behaviors. But yeah, I'm just I think the more prosaic version of what I wrote in the article is like we have, we have to sort of understand that this is a bunch. This could be a bunch of LARPing and a bunch of silly role play, but we can't be so ironic that our like ability to sense deeper political undercurrents is just ignored or gone, doesn't exist. Um, just if, yeah, we'll sorry. go on. No, no, that's it. And, you know, I think it's also worth stating, like, this is a hypothesis. Uh, it's based on my own, like, <laughs> my own lived experience, to use that phrase. I've hung out downtown for a couple of years now and put on plays. And I think by in the process of putting on plays, you meet a lot of people. Um, and I also argue in the piece that it's good that we have these spaces where people who are very different with very different opinions hang out. I think it's very important that you keep your friends. Like, I, I'm not trying to cancel my friends. I'm not trying to and my friendships, like I think there are certain lines that or the eventually I would end a friendship if we were crossed. But my the argument is not we should start trying to identify the future revolutionaries who in 20 years might become the next Lenin. It's just um but anyway, I yeah, i I'm trying to register, put down my own this the feelings that I've registered and, and the unsettling things that I've registered. And it might all and the way the internet moves, it's moves so fast and the way that um new trends and and new ways of thinking, new paradigms crop up and go away. Um, this all could seem totally absurd and, and dated in two years. I, I really don't know. That's I think that's equally likely. I or like 20... what you said in the piece, the, mim the mimetic violence of downtown discord, the denunciations, the trollings, the doxings, the terroristic threats, that is manifest in the way people talk to and more often about one another presages real political conflict in the future. I think that's really key to what you're getting at with this article. Yeah, because, you know, I've been a target of some of it. I have friends who have been targets of it. I have friends who have done it to each other. I think if you're willing to try to make someone feel really bad or put their address online or put their picture, do, do anything that just destabilizes their ability to live their day-to-day -day lives. If you're willing to do that really for literally no reason, like you've already, I'm not saying it's a slippery slope. I don't mean you're going to start murdering people, but that means you've already lost some kind of sense. You've, you've lost some dignity, some taboos and some boundaries within your own soul have been broken. And again, it's not a slippery slope. You're not, I don't think you're going to become a murderer, but you, you or something or, but something is broken within you at that point. And it's broken with in communities that celebrate that. And it certainly promotes worse and worse behavior. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, how did this scene evolve from this sort of collection of sort of anti-authoritarian, you know, we're going to stick it to, you know, um, figures like Cuomo sort of scene 
to, you know, how how do these sort of um, figures like Bronze Age pervert and people reading him and the sort of dabbling with eugenics thought and, and sort of racialist thought, how does that seep in? Um, that's a great question. That's a little bit above my own time in the sense that I think I was a post-2020 person. I, I, I'd been in New York, but I truly had no clue what I was totally, I wasn't even on, I wasn't really on Twitter till the pandemic. So that was, I had no social media at the time. I guess maybe I had a Facebook, but, uh, that, that was not exactly a hotbed of cool stuff, cutting edge stuff. So I don't fully have a, an answer to that, but I have talked to a lot of people who are in the BAP world. I, I know people who know BAP. And again, some of these, you know, I'm talking about people I genuinely like. I, and I don't, I think BAP is extremely smart. I fully am, I find his view of the world and his view of human nature very disquieting. And it's not, it's not a view of human nature that I embrace or a view of politics that I embrace. Quite the opposite. I think eugenics really is. <laughs> Anytime eugenic, you know, there's never been a civilization that's not done a non-horrifying version of eugenics. I think that's the simple argument against it is every time it crops up, it's 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 a, it's in a terroristic state. In order to get eugenics, you have to kill a lot of people and kill a lot of you know. It's whatever. It's ugly. It's really ugly. But yeah, I think BAP is very very clever, very very subtle, very funny. He is very he has obviously his his as a psychoanalyst of culture and as a psychoanalyst of modernity he's top notch i mean you you don't you don't get a following like that for no reason for you know he's not a village idiot so i think i think it's what it looks like which is a trickle of memes and in jokes and then eventually a book and then i i just think it's a gradual normalization process it takes I think the other thing is that, and this is really a whole other article, but I, I hinted at it in the piece, crypto created a new aristocracy overnight. And as, as with any, you know, an aristocracy is going to start looking for philosophies of an aristocracy. Chivalry was a code that, that retconned, you know, knights had to figure out why they had the right to kill a bunch of people whenever they wanted. And so chivalry was both a way of, you know, you could argue, like, you know, chivalry was a code that reined in the knights a little bit and but also justified why they got to have the armor and the castles and and so and this is just always true and so i think the the more speculative argument i would make is you had new made millionaires who might have been 21 19 30 but no one very few people older than probably 30 who had immense wealth all of a sudden and hadn't spent a lot of their time reading or going you know they spent their time coding and so, but they're really smart, high IQ people who, but don't, who don't, who haven't done a lot of intellectual legwork. And so there's someone who comes in with, as we now know about BAP has PhD in political philosophy, again, has clearly a well-read person has digested that for you. And is saying, by the way, we're looking for a new class of overlords who conveniently seem like they're having a lot more fun than the wokes. Yeah. And so I think, I think that was, it was, it was a time and place thing. It was a circumstantial thing. And then, and then of course, you know, if you have these people who can buy a hundred copies of these books and, you know, 
crypto guys do buy BAP and they do hand them out. And like, it's a, and that sounds corny, but yeah, you have a lot of wealthy people who want other people to read your book and are going to give it away and share it. And they have powerful online community or very well-networked online communities. Yeah. And so it's easy to see how that's more, that's more of a guess. I'm not really seeing that from the inside, but. No, that's fair. I think one of the most interesting aspects of your article is that it it seems like there's a lot of moral numbness and apathy towards the inflicting of pain. Those are some direct mm-hmm. quotes oh. from your article. And I think that part of that may just be everyone is so concerned with clout chasing and the fame chasing. And it seems like the more and more, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound too basic or, or trite, but it yeah. seems like people pursue the most extreme positions because that's what's going to get them clicks. That's what's going to get them noticed. Is that part of the issue at work? Yeah. I I do think that on a, I don't think you're, I don't think it's trite. I think on a very basic level, addiction dehumanizes you. If if you want a, a hit of something, your own moral calculus is going to be reduced to almost nil. And I do think on a, on a more basic mechanical level, the addiction to attention and the addiction to dopamine or whatever, uh, clicks, it likes wanting to be at the top that the addiction to being at the top of the mimetic period, a pyramid being the one that everyone else is copying. Everyone else is, um, pretending to be clout that, that is super more and more to me. That seems like it's superseding really basic norms, modes of behavior. And obviously this is, this goes deeper than downtown. Like I, I found that people, at least in New York, like on the street, just there's less bodily awareness to give one example, like, you know, just more people run into you. They're on their phones. They have earbuds in there's, there just seems to be a, like technology, I think is creating a general callousness. We're all losing some, some emotional bandwidth and well, especially online when, you know, I mean, I like doing these zoom chats because I, I mean, I'm talking to a person, whereas, you know, I mean, it's yeah. still very online. You're st- we're still communicating through the medium of Zoom. However, it's it feels different than tweeting and retweeting and arguing with someone oh, on yeah. X or whatever, because really you're just, it's almost like you're communicating with pixels on a screen. Yeah, I mean, this isn't, obviously um, a, a podcast is much, is not, well, it's it's closer to radio. I mean, it's, it's not, it's pretty, pretty Lindy. And it certainly doesn't, I mean, you can chop it up and, and you can soundbite it, but yeah, this is a, you know, to me, this is a real conversation. That's, that's, that's why I agree to podcast because that's actually a chance to talk through things that are, I'm thinking about with someone else who's also thinking about them as opposed to, yeah, just uh, memeing it or. Well, it, I mean, when you're just memeing it, I mean, it allows for a callousness just because, you know, you're not really seeing the other person. You know, that's right. That's right. You're not. And in fact, you can retweet a meme that you, you could be um, flaming, so to speak, of someone you've never met. You might be contributing to their the destruction of their reputation and you might meet them and find, as I found meeting people I've seen get blown up on the Internet, that they're totally different than whatever the thing that was said about them said. And I found that people meet me and find that I'm market i i hope different very different than whatever kind of weird stuff is said about me and yeah i mean ultimately no one wants to i mean i guess some people do want to be memes but that is a that is a 
I guess, a very perverse desire. Do you think there's also an issue at work of people? Um, you know, it, it, I used to follow pro wrestling and, and pro wrestlers would always say to me, uh, you can work yourself into a shoot kid. So which means, uh, you know, wrestling is fake. It's a work. But you you can sort of believe the work so much that it becomes a shoot. It becomes real to you. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's people that almost just get sucked into playing a character within different great, scenes? Yeah. I, mean, I think the wrestling metaphor, the kfab, that word has been thrown. I think it's totally right. It is it is kind of digital, digitized WWE. Um, and I don't think it's a mis- I don't think it's necessarily. Um, just a metaphor. I think a lot of people, uh, I'm 34. I'm a little bit older. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's a lot of <laughs> millennials who grew up in the nineties and early two thousands watching WWE who, who found like this. Yeah. I, to me, it totally tracks and there's, there's actually an influence there, but also uh, something else I've written. I've written about this much more on my subs or on my, my sub stack and something I'm actively thinking about um, but I think for people my age, I may I ask how old you are, JG. I'm uh 32. 32. Okay, so we're very so we're, much... we're only two years apart. We're the same generation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, growing up in the era of the 90s, aka the Simpsons, South Park, Howard Howard Stern, you there weren't uh, the Man Show. There weren't consequences for being crude, or I mean, there weren't consequences like post 2016 version consequences where. You could be deflat platformed, lose your career, have your you know your deals canceled, whatever. And so there's there's a whiplash from going from one of the most permissive iterations of culture. You don't think it's good culture, just permiss. You know, it it, it existed to one of the least permissive since our you know maybe the fifties. In a lot of ways, it feels like we've gone back. There there are. Yeah, I mean that's a whole again, it's probably another podcast, another article, but it seems like we've skipped the 60s through the 90s and we're back to 50s in certain ways. Or I, I mean, I don't know. There there's a lot to be said. But yeah, we 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 go from like a permissive culture that, to a very like, restrictive culture very quickly, it seems like over yeah, decades. And so, yeah. And so there's I think so for people our age in our 30s who who younger people I think grew up in the more restricted versions, they're more accustomed to it. They know how to navigate it, but for people our age. There, there are like sugar replacements. Like if you, we can't have sugar anymore, but we're looking for aspartame or something. And I think this KFAB meme culture fills a certain ingrained need for, I guess you could call mimetic wrestling, mimetic conflict. We, we almost get like a, a, a sort of joy out of it in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And absolutely. It is, it's fun until it's not. That's what I... Having been a, I don't make me, I don't produce this stuff myself, but I've certainly been tagged in it and it's, it's fun until it, it ceases to be. That's the last thing <laughs> yeah. I wanted to get into because I know we only yeah. have like five or so minutes and, and I didn't. Okay. Uh, so I, I guess the last thing I wanted to touch upon was, I mean, you talked about the, the idea of addiction and becoming addicted to things. And in some ways, I, I mean, what, I, what comes out in your article is that this scene starts out, uh, kind of questioning the sacred cows of the pandemic era, you know, and I myself was interested in figures like a Gembin, and I, I thought people shouldn't have been so quick to uh, cancel him uh, when COVID happened. That was crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, but I, I think in some ways we can go too far in the other direction 
where it's like there's a value in smashing taboos, smashing sacred cows. But at some point, it can become an addiction to just breaking taboos for the sake of breaking taboos, even if it's not for a good reason. I mean, I can understand why people were trying to break taboos in the pandemic era, because there were people that were isolated. And, you know, that isolation had ramifications. But when taboo breaking becomes, you know, uh, the end in and of itself, I think that's when you get this, uh, you know, just brand lifestyle nihilism that I would say is very unhealthy and socially unhelpful. There, yeah, I I think that's a, a very cogent point. And it's worth noting in, in what you said that, or that my takeaway from what you said is something like the tools, the the discursive tools that were necessary to resist, I, I think a really powerful multi-billion dollar messaging operation, maybe account even the trillions if you count all the different countries that were in some ways coordinated during COVID, and we've I mean, we've already memory hold this, we've already forgotten it, but this this was the kind of thing where you could, families and friends and and lovers were all, you could really lose, you could lose your, in the same way that was happening now with conflict in the Middle East, people were losing their jobs and relationships were, were in trouble just because of having a different opinion on things. But yeah, so the, the tools necessary, I think, to smash that messaging machine and allow for some just fresh air into social space were not the same tools are not good tools for building the world you want to live in um they're just not so it's it's one thing to be memeing really powerful people but then you run out of really powerful people to mock um and i don't have any issue with that because i think people who are protected by several layers of institutional prestige and wealth are, are and who are making decisions technocrats who are making decisions um undemocratically you know i have no sympathy for them and they're not going to be harmed physically by these by trolling but i but people without security guards people who might be you know like i might have had a hit play but i'm i would still tut- i'm literally tutoring today i still have a, a day job i still have to pay my bills um I think about it all the time. Like if you found a way to destroy my career for something I said on this podcast like that, you know, I would actually, I, I, I would have to move home. I'd have to get rid of my apartment. I'd have to, you know, my life, I don't have a backup plan. Um, and I think, and there are people in far more tenuous circumstances in the arts, at least in New York than I am. And, and I know people who have faced real existential risk from these online um, combi- you know, um, almost like harassment campaigns. Yeah. Harassment campaigns, uh, conflagrations. So yeah, that's how I feel about it. It's, it's, I mean, there's a lot, and then this, like the total lack of due process, total lack of any kind of like liberal society evolved these mechanisms to protect people from, from mob behavior. <laughs> and I don't, I don't just mean like puritanical cancel culture mobs, but any kind of mob that's harassing you for any kind of reason is really, really scary. And the, the goal of living in a liberal republic was to have protection from that. That's why that's why we built these institutions in the first place. I, I just wanted to add to that and then I'll let you go. I think uh, the one of the things I think that is very scary about the current moment we're in is that 
in a lot of ways, I view liberalism and particularly it's uh, proceduralism. It only works because we decide to suspend warfare. In other <laughs> words, you know, I mean, not to get into the whole 2020 election, but like we take for granted that, you know, if one side wants to be like, we don't accept the election results, you know, we don't expect them to do that. Um, but, you know, groups of people can just say, well, I don't agree with the proceduralism anymore of uh, this liberal order. And that's when things can get really uh, bizarre. You know, I think we're getting to a point where there could be a suspension of politics and we get back to just, I guess, violence, which is very yeah. scary. I think that's the undercurrent to this whole discussion, JG, is, is um, the question. It's like the old the question of can God microwave a burrito so hot that he even he can't eat it? Like, can the discourse create a, can we create a discourse so toxic that we we resort to violence just to escape the discourse? Can things get so bad symbolically that we actually prefer just fighting? And, you know, I. I, I it's hard. You see like memes about dueling and the sort of trad, trad argument, the Lindy argument. Dueling was Lindy because you had to have, this is actually the, like the Seem Tlaib argument about dueling. It's not even a right-wing position, but this kind of centrist Lindy thing that, well, you have to be able to put some skin in the game to accuse someone of something that used to be. And intuitively, like that doesn't, things are so bad that I'm like, yeah, that seems pretty good. I bet people would be not be assholes if duels were <laughs> viable. Um, and it's because, and it's the same thing with, with any kind of gangs or mobs. These are private forms of security. When the state can't provide security, these things evolve. They're all reflections of that. And so what the reason that we're starting to, I think normal, I would say kind of normal people, like you and I, who grew up in a American, I'll just, I'll call it American normality, um, feeling that breakdown around us. And yeah, it's, it immediately, it starts to become shockingly appealing to have forms of violence that protect you against other kinds of attacks. Um, I'm, and I'm not saying that we choose these things, we would choose these things, but you, you, you see why people would. That's what I'll say. So I'm going to let you going, but how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? You're on Twitter, you're on or X, whatever it's being called now. And also uh, you're on Substack, right? Yeah, I'd say my Substack is by far the best way to follow what I do. I, my Substack is just called My Writer's Diary. So I post uh, every day or two, um, and it's it's a collection of aphorisms and more personal things, and um, it, it's an it's an open format. So it, it's kind of a philosophical diary in a sense. I'm trying to make sense of the world as I'm trying to do here. Um, so if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd say yeah, MatthewGazda.substack.com or look up Matthew Gazda Writer's Diary, and then. Uh, my theater company is the Brooklyn Center for Theater Research, and you can find that. Just go to the Brooklyn Center, Google the Brooklyn Center for Theater Research, and we're the only thing that comes up. And uh, if you're in New York, go to brooklyncenterfortheaterresearch.com slash events, uh, or look up my Eventbrite page. So that's pretty much it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matthew Gazda. As always, if you appreciate the work here, I do at Parallax Views. Please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, 
Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.